When you want someone to really learn something, you have to repeat that thing over and over and over again. Any good teacher could tell you that. And in this psalm we're going to look at today, this is a psalm with a lot of repetition. Um, 18 times in this short psalm, the name of Yahweh, the Lord, is mentioned. Seven times there's a mention of his voice. And this is a clear theme in this passage is the voice of the Lord. And so as this psalm is going to repeat these same phrases, these same words over and over again, it has this feeling of as if it's hammering home certain truths into our minds. And so there's a real poetic beauty to this repetition. This is a very, uh, it's a very powerful psalm. So we've seen in the, the context as we've been going through the, these, this section of psalms from Psalm 23 to Psalm 30, that God's house is in view with every one of these psalms. So we see the mention at the end of Psalm 23, right? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then we're going to see the end of that section in Psalm 30 that we'll look at soon. But for this one, we see similarly a focus on God's house. There's still a focus on where God dwells. And really here, it's interesting because the focus is not so much on his dwelling place as on the voice of God, which is so central to understanding who God is. And so the focus here throughout is going to be on the voice of God. So the psalm starts with praise to God, and it ends with praise to God. And then in the middle, there's this extended picture of a storm that is this picture of the voice of God. So God's voice is compared to the storm, and it's a storm that devastates everything in its path. It's so powerful. And yet, not only is it powerful and devastating, it's also powerful over the, the intimate moments of life. So the picture here is really amazing. So it's, it's an amazing uh, psalm. So the outline, pretty simply, verses 1 to 2 is the call to the heavens. Verses 3 to 9 is the voice of the Lord. And then verses 10 to 11 is the reign of the king. So these two sections of praise that are end caps for this one metaphor of God uh, over the storm. So let's look at verses 1 through 2, the call to the heavens, verses 1 and 2. Let me read these verses. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So there's this threefold repetition at the beginning of the word ascribe. So this is the command, that this verb, this threefold verb at the beginning. The word ascribe just simply means to give. It means to give credit to someone for what they are, what they've done. So this word is very instructive for us about what worship is. Worship is simply giving to God the credit for what he has done and for who he is. It's simply accurately saying God's character and God's deeds. And so again and again, the psalmist is saying, ascribe to the Lord who he is and what he's done. But notice who he's speaking to. So you see, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Now notice that word O, it's just the letter O, okay? Um, this is, if you, if you care about grammar or spelling at all, then you will be very annoyed um, often with PowerPoints at churches because we don't know the difference between O and O-H-O. They're different, they're different words, okay? So now the, the editor of your Bible knows this, so he's, you know, they're going to be very careful with this. O-H, 
um, is an exclamation, right? It's O, O, you know, it's an exclamation like that. The O without the H on it, just the single O, is what's called a vocative. So it's, it's, in other words, it's addressing somebody. We don't really talk this way anymore. It's old, more old fashioned. But so to say, oh Lord, it's, if it was a single O, that's you speaking to God. So here, who is he addressing with this O? He's saying he's speaking to the heavenly beings, right? Who are the heavenly beings? Who are these, literally the sons of God? Well, these are um, almost certainly angels of some kind. So he's speaking to the angels. He's kind of speaking past the congregation and to the angels and saying, angels, praise God for who he is and what he's done. We'll see this in other Psalms. Psalm 103 is one of those where it speaks to these heavenly beings. Now, some people think that these could actually be fallen or rebellious angels. Now, what's it, what, what's happening here is that the psalmist is saying, you angels who are in rebellion against God, submit to his rule, bow down to him, give to him the praise that he deserves. That's, that's very possible. We can't be necessarily sure about that. But either way, he's speaking to something above um, just us humans, something greater. Now, almost the exact same you know, section here, the same verses, um, it's almost exactly quoted in Psalm 96. So listen to Psalm 96, 7 to 8. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. So notice what the difference is. The primary difference is, um, is that who he's speaking to, right? That vocative O is addressed to the families of the peoples. So in Psalm 96, he's actually speaking to humans. And so I think this, this verse, um, it's speaking to the heavens, clearly, to, to these greater beings. But by extension, all of us are in view. Because if the angels should worship God, then how much more should you and I worship God? I think that's a necessary implication of this, right? That we, he deserves our praise just as much or more than he does the angels. And so ascribe to the Lord, he says, glory and holiness. Um, these two words are, are very powerful words about who God is and, and what he does. We see the same words used in Isaiah 6.3, that famous passage where Isaiah beholds the throne of God and he hears what the angels around the throne are saying. And in Isaiah 6.3, what they're saying is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So holiness and glory are paired up just like they are in, in Psalm 29 in Isaiah 6. Those two words are important. Derek Kidner, who's a commentator on Scripture, he says, holy defines who God is, and glory is what radiates from him. So, he, so the psalmist is ascribing to God exactly who he is, the splendor of his holiness, the beauty of his glory. All of these need to, God needs to be given credit for who he is. Look at verses 3 to 9, the next section, we see the voice of the Lord. So this is, the again, the dominating metaphor throughout this, this passage is God's voice as a storm or connected to the storm. Look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So again, there's a clear focus on the voice of the Lord. You can't miss it. 
I mean, verse after verse starts with the voice of the Lord. So this is the focus. Seven times it's repeated. What's interesting is that the picture here is of God as being over the storm. Now, that may not seem weird to us. If you're, if you're a Christian, you would say, well, God is over everything, right? He's over humans, he's over the angels, and he's over the natural creation as well. But back in ancient times, you know, most civilizations were polytheistic. They ascribed to different gods, different deities, control over different things. And so probably the most prominent false god we see in the Old Testament is this god, Baal. There's kind of different manifestations of Baal. But generally speaking, Baal was this Canaanite or Phoenician god of the storm. Um, And Baal becomes this big opponent, right? Jezebel, who's from Phoenicia, she brings, probably brings worship of Baal to Israel. And then this is a big opponent of God's people for, for generations to come. But in that time, the nations thought Baal was the god of the storm. So he would be depicted as being over the storm. He was in charge of thunder and lightning. And so the imagery here, you know, some people have said, some of the more kind of progressive scholars have said, well, what's happening here is that actually a sort of a pagan hymn has been inserted into scripture. It's really about Baal, and they just changed the name to Yahweh. I, I think that's that's kind of crazy, honestly. I don't think that that's how the scripture would work. I think what's happening here, though, very possibly is the, the psalmist David is taking this picture from the uh, the false worship around him, and he's sort of um, you know taking it and he's appropriating it for God Himself to show, just like we saw we see in Genesis chapter one, that these the sun and the moon which the nations worshipped, well, God actually creates them. They're they're not gods; they're aspects of God's creation. In the same way, the storm is not the realm of Baal, it's the realm of Yahweh. He's in charge. And so this would have been countercultural to a lot of the surrounding nations. This would have been shocking to them. So there's this repeated idea of God as being over the storm. We see in in these verses that God is um, over the waters, it says, and then again it repeats it, over many waters. So this is storm language, but also this is language that is, I think, reminiscent of the flood. And we're going to see the flood mentioned later. The flood is in in view here. God is reigning over his storming judgment. His voice, when it goes out, has the power to bring judgment. It it is uh, effective. It is terrifying. It is majestic. Look at verse 5. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. So the storm is blowing through, and with it, it's bringing destruction and devastation. The cedars of Lebanon were famously sturdy and resistant to decay. So when Solomon builds his temple, he's going to outsource and bring in these cedars of Lebanon to make it of the best materials. And so God's voice and the storm that comes from God's voice snaps them like twigs. They're nothing. They splinter into a thousand pieces. They're nothing compared to the power of God. And then we see this mention of, of Lebanon as well. So he mentions the cedars of Lebanon, and then he says Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. Lebanon was is a nation north of Israel, if you know your geography. So it's north of Israel. And Syrian is also known as Mount Hermon. That's how we would think of it, right? If you're in Santa Cruz area, you know there's a camp here called Mount Hermon. 
named, I would assume, after the biblical location, right, at Mount Hermon, which is the highest point in Israel. So it's the it's to the very north of Israel, and it's this it's a true mountain. Um, often, when the when the Bible uses a the term mount or mountain, it's referring to what we'd consider a hill, right? Mount Zion, where the temple is, is elevated, but it's it's not a mountain as we would think of it. Hermon is a mountain. This is this is a very large mountain. It's over nine thousand feet, and so God is making this this strong mountain and this mountainous region in Lebanon. He's making these to fly away. They're nothing, right? They're like an animal that runs scared because of the power of God's voice. These things that are unshakable in nature don't stand a chance against the power of God's voice. An interesting parallel exists in uh, Isaiah 2, 12, and 13. Um, it, you see some of the similar language of speaking of the day of the Lord, which is this time of coming judgment. It says, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, and against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan. So again, the mention of the cedars of Lebanon, it's sort of this picture of those who are proud against God, and God is saying, when he brings judgment, he will bring them low. So this is language that's used throughout the scripture. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. So what is this flashing of fire? I think it's most likely lightning. I think that's what it's referring to here. A lot of commentators agree with that. This kind of fits the storm imagery. And Baal, when he was depicted in Canaanite imagery, was often depicted holding lightning bolts. For me, when I think of that, I think automatically of Zeus or, or Jupiter, right? That's kind of more the Western uh, image of that similar kind of a deity who's over the storms, but it, it's not Baal who's holding the lightning and has the power to wield that. Now it's Yahweh who has taken the weapon that is supposed to belong to Baal, and he's wielding it against his enemies. So we see that the power of God as opposed to the power that they would ascribe to Baal. No, it's it's the Lord who's in charge of the storm. It's in, It's the Lord who's in charge of the watery chaos. God is the one who's over it all. Verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. So God is also powerful over the desert. Kadesh probably refers to the region. There's some debate about this, but it probably refers to the region that was part of Israel's wilderness wanderings, right? So they were in Kadesh Barnea for a long time. So that's the very far south of Israel. So we've, there's this movement from the north, Mount Hermon in Lebanon, all the way down to the south. And I think it kind of speaks to the, the wide swath of God's control over the entire land. And God's voice is over it, and it shakes, right? It's bringing the earthquake. It's shaking the land. And again, that which is stable is nothing compared to God's power. I think there also is kind of a hint at the exodus as well. So we've seen flood imagery, and I think the Exodus is also in view. These are two of God's great moments of both judgment and deliverance. So his voice is powerful, and it brings the storm. And then also it kind of quickly changes to showing that his voice is powerful over the animals as well. Look at verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry, Glory. Okay, so 
he moves from these majestic big scenes, these sort of cosmic scenes of the entire land and of God shaking the earth and melting the mountains to a deer giving birth. It's a very it's a very strange shift for us. It's very it's a big contrast there. But the God who's in charge and whose voice has power over the greatest things in the world also has power over the seemingly insignificant things, the the intimate moments, the small things in life, right? It's God who has the power to give life at every level. And so his voice is what makes that a reality. God is in control. He makes the deer give birth. He strips the forest bare. And then there's the mention here of his temple, right? In his temple, all cry glory. So when we come to worship him, we need to give him the credit that he's due. So we see this theme brought full circle. And then we see the ending of the psalm in verses 10 to 11. And here we have the reign of the king. Verses 10 to 11, the reign of the king. This is that final section. Look at verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. So that word flood is only found in Genesis chapters 6 to 11. So this is very significant. So for that word to appear here, when it only appeared previously in in early Genesis, with the actual flood event is very significant. And as I mentioned earlier, both the flood and the exodus, which are both, I think, in view here, are significant moments where God brings his people through a stormy judgment. Uh, He brings them through the waters and through the storm in order to save them. In other words, the flood and the exodus both have moments that combine God's judgment and his salvation. And and it reminds us of the power of God's voice. Remember, in the flood, the event that, you know, depicts this is, well, it's the the flood itself, right? That's what it is, is it's this watery judgment. God brings this storm. He raises the waters to wipe out the earth. And so we have the flood narrative itself. God saves a a small number of people through this universal, uh, global devastation that happens. And so God is starting new, but he also brings salvation. And in the Exodus, we have the Red Sea event. Right? This is just one, part, one small part of the Exodus story, but it's a powerful one where God again brings his people through the waters in order to deliver them. And then he, those same waters fall down on the Egyptians and destroy them. So the waters of judgment become the waters of salvation. So we see it's God who is God over and king over the chaotic waters. He's the one who is, is powerful over this uh, the waters, which would have been this picture of evil and chaos for the ancient world. God's over all of that. He's in control of all of that. He sits over the flood, and he's enthroned over the flood. This is double repetition of God being enthroned. He is the king. He's in charge. Everything is under his control, even if it doesn't seem like it is. So the voice of the Lord as it goes out, it's, it's in control of everything. God, through his word, brings his power into the world. Look at verse 11. This is how it ends. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. So just like I mentioned at the end of Psalm 28, there's this pairing of of, uh, salvation with blessing. Here we have a similar thing, right? Strength to his people and blessing his people with shalom, with peace. 
So God not only rescues them, defends them, but he also delivers them into this paradise and this place where they're, they're whole forever. This is the end of God's saving work. I love uh, what Dalich said, which is who's one of the, a very famous commentator. He says this closing word in Hebrew, with peace, that's the final word in the psalm. He said that closing word is like a rainbow arch over the psalm. So I, lo- I love that imagery. And it's very powerful, right? Because we've been speaking about the flood and the storm. This is the rainbow after the storm, the, the promise of God of deliverance and of peace. So God is the great warrior, but he, he fights this battle by his voice. It's his word that has power. This is how he demonstrates who he is. And so we should think, just as we saw in Psalm 19, we should meditate and think on the power of God's word and how we should dwell in God's word, listen to his word, obey what he says always, because this is where his power is demonstrated to us. I'll just end with um, kind of an odd passage to bring up maybe, but I just want to end with Revelation chapter 10. I want to read this verse and I'll kind of explain how it connects. Revelation 10, 1 through 3 says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So interesting imagery, uh, as you know, Revelation is full of interesting imagery. I love that there is this rainbow, right, which again is a symbol from the flood. It's very common in depictions of God and the throne that he's surrounded by a rainbow. In other words, he's, he's surrounded by this promise that he had to sustain the world. And, and I think it's a picture of his final salvation for his people. So we have that this God of the storm is also beholding that rainbow promise. But what's so interesting in connection with Psalm 29 is this mention of seven thunders. And some people connect those seven thunders with the seven mentions of the voice of God in Psalm 29. We don't know for sure that's true, but, but with the same kind of imagery, I think, is, is present here. That God is, from the beginning of Scripture to the end, He's in charge. His voice is going out. He's sovereign over the storm, and He's sovereign over the chaos of life. And everything pales into comparison to the God of the universe. So listen to the voice of God, right? Heed his word. Draw close to him today and listen to what he says and and be the one who is obedient to his word.